0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd encourage you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Phoebe, I appreciate the the song selection this morning. Uh, I always love. You know, sometimes, sometimes I'll coordinate a little bit and let Phoebe know, like, "Hey, I would love to, if we could sing this song." And but most most of the times, I know Phoebe looks at the passages that we're uh, that we're going to be reading, that we're going to be studying, and she'll she'll pick appropriate songs. And this morning, uh, just incredibly appro- appropriate. I appreciate it. Just thinking even of the last song we sang holy, holy, holy to understand the depths of just what that means holy, holy, holy and then merciful and mighty how can God be holy, holy, holy and show a worm such as me mercy how can he be mighty, and yet reach down out of heaven and out of eternity and and rescue one like me to be his child. It's a beautiful thing, and it's really what we're going to be ultimately talking about this morning. Before we get into our text this morning, which is a, a very lengthy text, and I'll explain that in a minute. Just want to kind of give get everyone up to speed. If you uh, maybe this is your first Sunday here, kind of stepping in uh, mid-series, kind of I'll catch you up. We've been in the book of Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is a a book of sermons. Moses is a pas- is a pastor of this congregation of the nation of Israel. They have come out of the land of Egypt, they have now wandered 40 years in the wilderness, and they are on the precipice of entering the promised land. And Moses knows that he, because of his own sin, is not able to enter the promised land. As we, as we saw, I believe, last week, Moses did not honor God before the people So God told him, you are not going to enter the promised land. I'll take you up on this mountain. You will see it, but you yourself will not go into it. So Moses is a a pastor who fully realizes his own mortality, realizes that he cannot take his congregation into the promised land. And he preaches the series of sermons pleading with them. And we are currently in the second sermon in this book, it's the, it's the longest of the sermons. And Moses began by kind of retelling the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And now we're in this, this section of the, the sermon where he is uh, expositing or explaining the, the commandments. Really, chapters 6 through 26, he's unpacking each of the Ten Commandments and explaining them. So far, we've looked at kind of the the further explanation of of the first four commandments as we've looked at various principles on how we are to worship God. We've seen as kind of the order of the commandments go, God is God alone. There are no other gods. Therefore, he determines how he is to be worshiped. We also saw in the, the fourth commandment kind of as this bridge between the first table of the commandments dealing with our relationship with God and the second table of the commandments dealing with our relationship with one another. The, the fourth uh, commandment, the Sabbath commandment, we saw as, the, as Moses gives the principles for the Sabbath commandment, we saw principles of mercy and compassion, generosity, generosity something that you see as Jesus deals with the Pharisees in the New Testament, this is coming up constantly as they're accusing him of breaking the Sabbath for healing. And he says, you've, you've forgotten the very essence of the commandment, mercy and compassion. Last week we saw in the fifth commandment, the the commandment for children to honor their father and their mother. We we looked at how the principle of that really deals with all authority figures in our lives. How we are to honor the authorities that God has placed above us, and also, likewise, how we are supposed to honor those who God has placed under us. As we read in, in uh, Romans this morning, Romans 13, the, the, the summary of the law, the principle of the law is, is love. And you really see that throughout. Well, this morning as uh, we cover a, a lengthy section, as I said, it's going to be chapter, uh, chapter 19 all the way through the midpoint of uh, chapter 23. We're going to be looking at the exposi- exposition of the sixth and seventh Commandment. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. And as I've said through, throughout this section on the explaining of the Ten Commandments, it's important for us to understand that Moses is giving an application specifically to the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. There are many things that don't directly apply to us anymore as they were specific to the nation of Israel. But what we can kind of pull out of Moses' sermon in these areas is the general principles that apply even still today. In this section, I, I would encourage you uh, this week, if you haven't already, to read through it. There's, as I talk about us going through the sixth and seventh commandment, I say that generally speaking, there, there are certain areas in this that you'll get to that probably fit better with some of the other commandments, but generally speaking, Moses is here speaking of, of murder and adultery or sexual immorality. Let me pray that I'm going to read just a couple sections of our text this morning for the, for the sake of time. And we'll get get into this and, and uh, look a little bit further into the sixth and seventh commandments. Father, as we come before your word this morning, I pray first that you would just humble us under it, that you would humble us under you, that as we would explore this section of uh, Moses' sermon that has been handed down to us uh, throughout the ages, that we would see your beauty in it, that we would see your holiness in it. Father, I pray that you might, in the way that you can only do, kind of crush us under the weight of these commandments, expose us to your holiness, Enough that, like Isaiah, we would put our hand over a mouth. See, I have a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Father, that we would understand your perfection and your beauty. But, Father, as you crush us as we are exposed to your law, I pray that you would pull us back up as we are exposed to your mercy, to your grace in Christ. Help us, Father, as we look at your word this morning. Give us, Father, through the graces of your Holy Spirit, the ability to understand what we see, to believe your word and to obey your word. Soften us and help us through this because we need your help. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read through, all the way through chapter 19, and then uh, the second half of chapter 22, kind of give us a feel for what Moses is preaching on here, and then we'll discuss from there. So again, if you have your Bibles with you, Deuteronomy chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. 1. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourself in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession so that any manslayer can flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood and hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him. Because the way is long, and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die, since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore, I command you, you shall set apart three cities. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he has sworn to your fathers, and gives you all the land that he promised to give your fathers, provided you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, and by walking ever in his ways. Then you shall add three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of this city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses, or if three witnesses shall a charge be established, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst." And the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And turn over to chapter 22, begin reading in verse 13. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this and yet this, is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him. And they shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver and give, him, give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel." And she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, and they shall bring, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house. And the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst." If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city. You shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, Though she was in the city and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense, punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country. And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there is no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. There's a lot here to cover, and a lot as we kind of read through that, that maybe is a bit of a shock to our senses, that how how is this in certain areas, justice, is this sort of punishment warranted? That's why we're going to get into talking about the the holiness of God, and and there's so much to cover here, I, I might, uh, hopefully can find some time this week just to send out some kind of information about some of the texts throughout this passage, as so much of it, it does reveal for us principles of how we are, ought to live now, but also so much of this text and many of the uh, sections that I haven't been able to read and, and many of the sections that Moses has already spoken to the people of Israel about recorded in Exodus or Leviticus, and he's now bringing it out in this sermon so much of that points us to Christ, and what we will see some of that this morning. But for the sake of time, to kind of cover this large section today, I, I kind of chose a certain thread that I'm just going to pull this morning and focus on that one, that one idea. So first, as we consider this text and we consider the 6th commandment and the 7th commandment you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. I want to just walk us through and I emphasize this in my reading but a, a refrain that comes out throughout this section of Deuteronomy and it's really it, it's it comes out in a couple other sections in Deuteronomy but this is really where the majority of these references come from. And this this, uh, exposition of the sixth and seventh commandment, it's this refrain, you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, or you shall purge the evil from your midst. So as I walk through to kind of give an overview of this, as I just read in chapter 19, as we see kind of the difference between manslaughter and murder the difference between a man who unintentionally kills someone else and then the one who hates his brother and murders him. We see this whole idea of the the cities of refuge, but the point, the main point being that the one who murders because he has hated his brother must die. We we see, and I, I This is a thread I'm not pulling out this morning, but the idea of man being created in the image of God, as we see in Genesis 9, 6, God tells Noah that a man who sheds blood by man's hand, he die because, and he points all the way back to creation, because he's created in the image of God. There's sanctity to life. So in this case, when a man murders his brother, He hates his brother and he lies in wait. He murders his brother. Justice must be met out and that the avenger of blood or the next of kin is to put him to death. As verse 13 in chapter 19 says, gives us this reason, you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel. Continuing on in chapter 19, we had the section on kind of malicious witnesses, a witness who wants to see someone else suffer, but they're lying. And Moses' instruction is if you catch this, this lie, this malicious witness, they say the punishment that he was hoping would be enacted against his brother should be carried out against him. And why? Verse 19, so you shall purge the evil from your midst chapter 20, as principles of warfare are laid out, we see specifically as Moses addresses the principles of warfare within the land of Canaan, within the promised land, that there, there is a command to devote every living thing, everything that has breath in, the, in these towns, in these cities, within the promised land, to devote them to to destruction. And we've touched on this some already in our, our study of Deuteronomy, but it's a hard thing for us to hear. There's one rule for Israel if, as they go out and, and find themselves in warfare against cities outside the land of promise. They first go and try to make peace with the city. If warfare does happen, they're only to kill the men. But in the promised land, they are supposed to devote everything to, to complete destruction. And the reason for this is that so they don't turn their heart away from the Lord their God. And that's something that we have, you see as you study the pages in the history of Israel is the foreign wives that came in and it did indeed turn the hearts of Israel against the Lord their God. So there's this picture in chapter 20 of a cleansing of the promised land. In chapter 21, you have a section on unsolved murders to kind of go back to uh, what we were talking about in chapter 19, manslaughter and murder. Well, in this case, Moses is talking about finding a murdered individual, but no murderer. They don't know who the murderer is. And there's this whole process they go through and they, they end up, if they can't f- find out who murdered this victim, that they, they take a, a cow and they break its neck and there's an atonement made. And in verse 19, uh, verse 9 of chapter 21, the reason is given, again, so you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst. In verses 18 through 21 of chapter 21 we're given the sentence for a rebellious son if a son is rebellious there's this command to take him outside the city and stone him to death and again verse 21 says the reason for this so you shall purge the evil from your midst Chapter 22, verses 13 and following, what I read dealing with these sins of sexual immorality, we see various examples of both men and women, again, being stoned to death for their sins. And again, in this section, three times it's repeated, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. It can sometimes feel to us maybe harsh. They're difficult passages to read. We wrestle maybe with the extent of the punishment that is prescribed in these passages. Possibly seems like a harsh overreaction. But what these do, what these point out in this repeated refrain of purging the evil from their midst, we see the holiness of God. And as I've mentioned, as we've mentioned in this study so far, this is really what the Ten Commandments are a display of. The Ten Commandments display the very character and the very holiness of God. I've said it over and over again. They're not just a random set of rules that God just thought, "Hey, this would be fun to give them a challenge." Let's get. I'll have, give them these ten commands. No, they they outline. They they display his character. They display who he is. And these negative commands that we see the the "you shall not" commands really reveal. God's holiness they re, they they not only not only reveal the requirement for his people to to abstain from these things to flee from them but they reveal that God in his very character that none of these things are found in him there's no sin in him he is perfect he is holy 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 it said three times, holy, 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 to help us understand the, the perfection of his holiness. There is no sin found in him. So, these commands to, to flee from murder and to flee from hate, to flee from sexual immorality, they display his holiness to us. And as we see throughout scripture, the precedent is because he is holy, his people are called to be holy, so therefore they purge the evil from their midst in chapter 23 verse 14, giving commandments just about the as Israel goes out and they have their military encampments, he gives various rules and the reason that he gives in verse 14 of chapter 23 is this he says because the lord your god walks in your midst of, in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up and, and to give up your enemies before you therefore your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you you see this is the thrust of redemptive history as god We see him in the beginning in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve dwelling with Adam and Eve and yet their sin drives this wedge of separation between them. And the whole course of redemptive history is looking forward to this promise of God being our God and dwelling with his people. So I will make my dwelling among them. This is from Leviticus 26, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is really what we are looking at throughout the course of history and that we, what we see finalized in glory in the new heavens and the new earth as God dwells with us. He dwells with us. And there will be no more tears and no more sickness and no more sin Because of what Christ has done. He's purged the evil from among us. So now God lives with us. He dwells with us. He will be our God and we will be his people. This is also pointed out in our passage. Just random, as you read through this, it seems like random verses, but Deuteronomy 22, uh, 22, 12, he talks about putting tassels on the four corners of their garments and this is one of those areas where Moses says something that the audience understands is coming from kind of past instruction. Because as we, we know from Numbers 15, the, the whole purpose of the tassels on these garments is kind of like someone tying a string around their finger to remember something. Like I'm, I'm supposed to remember to, to grab my, this is a real case, I need to grab the lunch that my wife made me that's in the fridge over in the office and bring it home so the dishes can be can get washed. I need to remember that thing like, oh, that's what that's what that reminds me of. Well, these tassels had a very specific purpose as Numbers 15 draws out. Numbers 15 says you should you should see these tassels, and you should remember the commands of the Lord your God that you may do them and that you may be holy before God. There is this cry throughout this passage for holiness before God. Holiness. See, we need to have, when we struggle with passages like this, we struggle with, like, that, it, it, this can't be, like, that's the Old Testament God, right? Not, not the New Testament God. But we understand that that's, that's a heresy, The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. There's great beauty in that. As we struggle with these things, we really need to first, rather than having our standard that we then bring God down to try to align with our standard, we need to see his standard of perfection, his standard of holiness, we have to have a high view of God and a low view of ourselves. And it's only then that we can actually begin to hate sin as much as God hates sin. Paul draws on much of this language in his writing. If you want to, you can turn to Second Corinthians with me, Second Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6, beginning with verse 14, Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, which, just as a side note, also comes from this sermon, this uh, portion of Deuteronomy. But do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God does not change. He is holy. So his standard does not change. And even though we may see it played out in a specific application with the nation of Israel from these passages in Deuteronomy, that doesn't change the fact that God hates sin. That doesn't change the fact that for God to dwell with his people, he requires us to be holy as he is holy. So as believers, as his children, we need to recognize that it's not my standard that matters because I can easily excuse so many of the sins that I find pleasurable, many of the things that I want to do. And as Devin was talking about in Sunday school this morning about the warfare between the flesh and the spirit, that warfare's not there if we just say our standard's good enough. I'm good with this. I can be comfortable with this sin. But that's not our standard. The standard is the holiness of God and that's exactly what the spirit of the living God in us is doing, convicting us of sin. Giving us new life so that what we we know, what we once didn't delight in, we now delight in. That I hate the sin in me, and I want to do what God has called me to do. I want to purge the evil from me. Paul uses that, that, that same language from Deuteronomy in 1 Corinthians, as he's talking about church discipline. And I think this is an important thing for us to realize. Your sin doesn't just affect you. Your sin affects the entire body of Christ. And it's a mystery. I'll say that. It's a mystery because sometimes we can convince ourselves that our private sins can stay private. But they are affecting the body of Christ. When we think about the laws of sexual immorality. Why is sexual immorality and, and marriage so important? Well, from the very beginning in Genesis, where God instituted marriage, to the very end of Scripture in Genesis 19, where you see the marriage supper of the Lamb, marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. And therefore, we have to hold marriage in high honor. We have to honor it because God honors it. But in this section on first in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's talking about church discipline and he's talking about the need. He says, not, I didn't tell you to not interact with the with the sinners in the world. He says, because then you'd have to leave the world. Have them over to dinner. Don't you can't run and hide. He says, but if it's a brother or a sister who claims Christ and thinks that they can serve both Christ and whatever sin they want to serve, he says, that's an anathema to me. I want nothing to do with that. And he uses this language from Deuteronomy. He says, put them out. He says, purge the evil person from among you. Individually, This is, has to be our heart as we understand Romans 8 and Colossians 3 talking about what we call the mortifying of our sins, the putting to death of our sins. We're called to put our sins to death. It's a warfare. As John Owen says, who, who wrote the, the, book, the wonderful book on the mortification of sin, He writes, he says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Purge the evil from your midst. But as we boil this down, the sixth and the seventh commandment, really all the commandments that God has given us, and we understand his holiness We can't come to a passage like this without putting just a little bit more weight on top of us for a second. Because Christ, as he preaches on this, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said you shall not murder. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. And he's really challenging the misreading of his law. Because as we'll see, especially when we get to the 10th commandment and really the thrust of Deuteronomy, as Moses is pleading for the heart of his people, he is not pleading for just an outward conformity to these commandments. He's pleading for a change of heart, a change of heart that he says in Deuteronomy 30 is something that God must do for you. It's not just outward conformity. And this is what the Pharisees and the people in Jesus' day thought as long as I don't do the deed, as long as I don't murder, as long as I don't commit adultery, then I am good enough. But Christ says, no, those are just the actions that come out of the heart of man. Because you've hated your brother, you've spoken against him. If you've hated your brother, you're already already guilty of murder because murder is born out of the heart of man. If you've lusted after a woman, if you've lusted after your neighbor's wife, you're already guilty of adultery because those sins are born out of our heart. In our culture today, there's, So much that my wife and I enjoy sometimes winding down at night watching some show, and right now we're watching some reality TV show. But when, you know, you're watching a reality TV show, other commercials come on about other reality TV shows. Some of the things, the majority of the things that these reality TV shows are based on, the whole Idea of them, which shouldn't even be named Among Us, you see these commercials, and my mind is blown. How? How can we do that? Sexual sins are spoken against so often in Scripture, so often in the New Testament, because so many of the, so much of our hearts produce these sexual sins, but things like giving into pornography, lust, whether, whether you're pulling up pornographic images or not, the lust in our heart, Dealing with our hate. I think this is one of the, de- one of the issues dealing, that C- Christ is dealing with in his church of the unity of, of his children. Why, why, do we, why do we struggle against these things? As James says, why do we have an issue with unity? Is because we're all wanting our own way. Because of the hatred and the anger within us. It is a real battlefront for us all. We live in a world that celebrates so much of the things that, call, that God calls an abomination. So much of the things that God calls evil. The world around us celebrates and doesn't understand when we take a stand against it and say we cannot participate and we cannot celebrate that. But as I said, as the Sermon on the Mount really presses down upon us the weight of this law, that we recognize that these things come from within. We understand that there's none righteous. And as Paul quotes that passage and he stresses again, yeah, there's none righteous. No, not one. Where do we go? Where do we go to see what God has done for us? How can he change our heart? We'll we'll begin to see his mercy. Go back to our passage in Deuteronomy. Do you wanna read one last section of this passage? As we have in it really a foretaste of, of God's mercy to come. Chapter 21 of Deuteronomy, verse 18. This is again dealing with that rebellious son. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother. And though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you, so you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear." People, we are, we are the rebellious son. We are the rebellious children who are deserving to be drug out and stoned. But thinking of this passage, I couldn't help but think of Luke 15 and the parable of the prodigal son. Because as the prodigal son comes home after squandering his inheritance, which he asked for early, squandering his inheritance, eating with the pigs, coming home just to be a servant in his father's household, hoping, says that's, that's at least better for me than eating with the pigs the older brother accusing him of squandering his property with prostitutes. The prodigal son comes home. He doesn't walk to the door and knock on the door and the father open it. And the father say, how dare you? The father doesn't grab his arm and haul him to the elders of the city and say, this is my son, who is rebellious and has squandered my property, stone him. No. The passage says that as the son is far off, the father girds up his clothing and runs out to him. And he tells his servant, take my best cloak and put it on him. Put shoes on his feet Kill the fattened calf because my son, who I thought was dead, has come home. How can God, who is holy, 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 and mighty, be merciful? Well, continuing on in Deuteronomy 21, the very next verse. Verse 22, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For the hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has giving you for an inheritance. And Paul again draws directly from this text and says Christ was hung on a tree Christ became a curse for you. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So how can God, who is holy, 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 be merciful and mighty? Well, he steps down and he takes the punishment. He deals out the justice that you and I deserve on the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So that when we come home, he wraps us in his best clothing. He puts shoes on our feet. He kills the fattened calf for us and he rejoices and says, my son, who I thought was dead, has come home. 1 Peter 2, he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It's really only in this that we can have the affections of our heart changed. When God reaches down and rescues us through the atoning sacrifice of his son. He clothes us in his son's righteousness. It is only in that that our affections can change, that our delight becomes our delight in him. We begin this warfare wrestling against the, our, our flesh with the spirit because we know that we want more. We want to purge the evil from our midst. It's only in this work that God does that we can have a new heart. That we can really see these commandments and not see them barely as the you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery, but to see in them what Devin read from us from Romans 13, love. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We look past the "you shall not," and we see our neighbor as someone who we delight in, because we we delight in the Lord our God. Therefore, we look to the best of our neighbors, even to the point of, as this law, as this sermon says of Moses, building little walls on our roof so that our neighbors don't fall fall off and die. Because the whole sum of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We only do that as we rightly understand what God has done for us, that he has first loved us, and therefore we can love him and love our neighbor. This is why we come to the communion table every Sunday. Because like the tassels on the, the garment of the people of Israel, we need to look at something. God has given us something to look at, something to handle, something to taste. To say, through this, remember what I have done for you. Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He hung on the tree. He shed his blood so that you and I could be called the children of God. And we will look forward to, this is a small taste of that wedding feast that we look forward to in eternity, mm-hmm. where we will finally see the culmination of redemptive history, God dwelling with us and us with him, singing holy, 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 knowing that we can be there because of what Christ has done for us. If you don't believe the gospel message, if you don't have faith in Christ, this Lord's Supper isn't for you. This is something that God has given his church, his children to celebrate. And he wants, us to, he wants us to celebrate that. He wants us to keep it pure because as we take it, we identify with Christ. We identify with Christ in our union with him and our communion with one another. As we've read this morning, we can't serve both God and our sin. So if you're not a believer, we'd ask you just to let the elements pass you by, but don't let it stop there. If you're not a believer, cry out to God, be that prodigal son who comes home and know that he will not reject you. If you come to him, by faith, he will wrap his grace and mercy around you in Christ and welcome you home. If you are a believer, and encourage you to take this, these elements, this bread and this cup, with joy. Take it with assurance, knowing that Christ has paid the price for your sin. And ushered you into his family. Let's pray and we'll enjoy this together. Father, just pray that as we do come before your supper this morning, that you would bless us in it, that you would nourish us as in a spiritual way we are feasting on Christ, we are being nourished on him. We thank you for this. Grace that you've given us through Christ. We thank you for this way that we can remember what He has done because as we have the weight of your law pressed upon our heart and we see just how far short we fall of it, that you are holy in perfection. We realize that it is only through the the mediating work of your son that we could possibly call you Father, that we could cry out to you, Abba, Father, and that your spirit within us would testify that we are the children of God, that you've welcomed us home. I praise you for your word. I praise you for your son and the salvation that you've given us in him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.